All right. Good morning, everybody. How many of you, any Olympics fans out there? Anybody kind of excited? Oh, everybody. Awesome. That was great. Absolutely. Well, again, we want to welcome you here this morning. We want to say good morning. My name is John Anderson. I'm the campus pastor here. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, would love to do so. Officially want to welcome you to the Van Halen concert uh, here this morning. <laughs> I have no idea what that was, but that was, that was something. Uh, <laughs> and I'm in the back thinking, somehow I have to follow that. Like, I... I guarantee you what you just saw, it didn't happen at any other church in North America this morning. I'll tell you that. So only the best here at Hope Des Moines, but we have some pretty talented musicians. And, uh, you know, David played his harp for the Lord. So that's our rendition uh, of that as well. Worship can come in a lot of different ways. But uh, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of in the Olympic spirit. Uh, I'm excited about uh, what's happening. Maybe some of you saw the, the, the opening uh, ceremonies this past week. But I saw a friend post on Facebook this week that the Olympics are that time when we all go crazy for athletes that we've never heard of competing in sports we choose to care about once every four years. So that's what the, if we're honest, right, that's, that's the Olympics. But they are exciting especially when you know the story behind a lot of the athletes, just like Lindsey Vaughn, who you saw there in the opening video. She's one of the most uh, famous kind of successful American uh, winter athletes, a skier uh, of all time. And you may recognize her for that and all the, the medals that she's won and, and all of that. But what you caught a glimpse of in the video and what people often forget is the unbelievable amount of setbacks that she has I guarantee you, for every uh, Olympic athlete that you're going to watch over the next couple weeks, I guarantee for that moment where they're standing on the pedestal and getting that medal put around their neck or hearing the, their country's national anthem played, I guarantee you that for every one of those moments, there is a lifetime of setbacks. There is a lifetime of disappointments, of falling down and getting back up over and over and over again. And that certainly has been the case for Lindsey Vaughn. You want to talk about a life filled with disappointment. Everybody say disappointment. 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 After winning two medals at the 2010 Winter Olympic Games, in 2013, she has this major crash, and she goes crashing into the, the walls there, the, the, the ropes, and she tears up her entire knee, and it forces her to miss the entire 2014 game. So you can imagine how devastating that is for an Olympic athlete. You literally train four years for three minutes. Right? I mean, whether you're speed skating or ice skating or downhill skiing, whatever it is, it's a very short amount of time. So imagine how devastating that is for her. She works her whole way back to get to that one goal, and that was just the start. So in 2015, she works all the way, her all the way back. Only after rehabilitating her knee, she breaks her ankle. And then in 2016, after coming back, she crashes again and fractures her other knee. And then you see her rehabilitation there in that video. And then finally, just a few months ago here, in November of 2017, she suffers a lower back injury, setting her back several weeks in preparation for the Olympics. And then a couple weeks later, her grandfather dies, who is basically her entire inspiration for skiing, the one that introduced her to it, kind of her rock in her life, and yet she falls down and she gets back up again. And you think what everything she's been through, if you were her, most people would have quit. Most people would have just thrown in the towel and say, I'm not going to get up again because I'm so tired of being disappointed. Most people would have just thrown in the towel. But this past couple weeks, she's uh, been interviewed and she was quoted as saying this. I found this quote pretty interesting. She says this, everyone asks me if I'm afraid. After so many crashes, do I take my foot off the gas pedal? Well, I'm smarter and I try to manage my risk better than I have in the past. It's still ski racing. And then listen to this. You can try to manage risk as much as you want. 
You can try to manage risk as much as you want, but at the end of the day, it's a dangerous sport. And I think the same thing could be said of life or skiing. You can try to manage risk as much as you want. In other words, Lindsay's learned that life is full of disappointments. And you can either try to find life right in the middle of those disappointments, or you can live a life where you just sort of resign yourself, well, I'm never going to try. I'm just tired. I'm just tired. I'm overwhelmed. I'm never going to put myself out there again for fear of being disappointed. I wonder, what have been some of the disappointing moments of your life? Where do you find yourself this morning? I'm guessing some of you are maybe not saying it out loud, but you're thinking to yourselves, I had hoped maybe that things would be here and they're actually here. (laughs) I had hoped that maybe things would be a little different. Be be honest with you, I want to be authentic and tell you about some of my disappointments. My life was going along just fine. It was perfect. I didn't have any disappointments until about the age of four, and that's when I started cheering for the Iowa Hawkeyes. (laughs) And it didn't take me long to realize that when you place your hope in a group of 18 to 20-year-old college athletes, you're probably going to be disappointed uh, from time to time. And those of you that have your favorite team, you know the roller coaster that it is, right? But deeper than that, what's left you disappointed? What are some areas of your life these days that you had hoped would be here and they're actually here? Well, you know, after college, I had kind of hoped that I would have this career and this job and I actually ended up here doing what I'm doing right now, and it pays the bills, but it, well, it just sort of is. You know, I kind of hoped that, that I would be married by this time, but I'm, I'm not. I kind of hoped that maybe we would have kids by this time and have this many kids, but, you know, this happened, and we have this many kids. You know, I kind of hoped that this friendship would, would work out, but instead of continuing and going deeper in this friendship, this one kind of fizzled. You know, I, I kind of had marriage expectations that our marriage would look like this, you know, kind of be a fairy tale and well, my expectations were here and we're just kind of here. Some of you had these expectations to have this kind of body. <laughs> After another year of unmet New Year's resolutions, I'd kind of hoped to have this body, but the reality is it's here. For some of you, I had really, really hoped to have this type of life, this type of joy and satisfaction in my life, but maybe some of you are feeling like you're just sort of surviving, like you're just sort of getting by. And so with all the disappointments that we face, the, the, the worldly response would seem to be, well, just never hope for anything anymore. Never desire. Never, never put your heart out there again. For some of you relationally, in, in, in relationships, you, you put your heart out there. You say, I'm going to be vulnerable only for it to get stomped all over. So why ever get back up and go down the slopes again like Lindsay? It would have been a lot easier just to say, my knees are blown out. I'm done. I'm never going to get back on the slopes. And that's where some of you are. You've lost Heart. Proverbs 13, 12 puts it this way. Let's read this together on the screen. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Wow. Hope is powerful. Hope is finding that reason to keep moving forward, to keep getting up and saying, there's a purpose to my life. It what makes life worth living. And so a couple responses. We can be cynical. We can be jaded. Or we can shut down our hearts, and some of you have. Because I don't ever want to feel the way that I felt there again, and so I'm just going to kind of resign myself to, well, I'm just going to kind of survive, and then we know we're all going to heaven someday, and then things will get better. That's not what Jesus is offering you. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. Not 
an eternal church service in the cloud someday when we get to heaven, but life, and that life, Jesus says, starts now. The original Greek that he's speaking in there is a life that is now and later. So we don't want to just survive, and we don't want to shove our heart down and, and just kind of kill it. Maybe there's something better. And maybe a better question for us to ask this morning is, how do I find life in the middle of disappointment? None of us are where we want to be. None of our lives are the ideal picture of what we wanted them to look like. So how do we find life even in the midst of disappointment? Well, to answer that question, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis 37. It's conveniently located in the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 37, we've been walking through this as a series the past several weeks, and uh, we're looking at it through this binge-worthy Bible series by going through some of these shows. How many of you have enjoyed this series so far? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you are like, I'm ready to be done with it, right? No, it's been really good. I've, I've enjoyed it, and we've gone through almost the whole book of Genesis, looking at some of these stories through the lens of some of your favorite shows. And today we're going to look at the series Mad Men as well. But we've been going through these, and I have to tell you, uh, this one today is a little bit challenging. We're going to look at the story of Joseph. Joseph goes from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50, that's 13 chapters, and we're not going to get through all that today, I guarantee you, unless you want to hang out here the other day. So we're going to kind of take a jet tour through uh, the story of Joseph uh, today as well. But when you want to talk about unmet expectations, sometimes it's easier to look at this kind of from a visual standpoint. But when we look at Joseph's life and, and really ours, all of us start out with dreams. All of us start out with dreams and, and, and desires that that God's placed on our heart. Everybody say dreams. And then on the other side of that, there's the fulfillment of those dreams. And sometimes that comes sooner rather than later for people, but most of our lives is lived here, in the in-between. And in the middle, our lives, just like Joseph's, are filled with that giant D word, disappointment. Most of life is lived learning how to function in the midst of continual disappointment. And if you look at Joseph's life, it starts with a dream, and we see the fulfillment of that dream. It's just not what he expected. And so what I believe that we're going to discover today in Joseph's story is that the way that we respond to disappointment and the things that God teaches us in the midst of that are just as important, if not more important, than getting our expectations Met. Does that make sense? Who we become along the way in life is just as important as whatever the fulfillment ends up looking like. Okay, so let's dive in. Chapter 37. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. All right, Genesis 37. We're going to start at verse 3. So last week we read about Jacob, and Jacob is now getting older, and he is the father of 12 sons. So those of you that are young parents, just give yourselves a high five for getting to worship today on time. It's awesome. You're here. Good job. Now imagine having 12 uh, people to get to church, all right? So he has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph. Verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So it's kind of a nostalgia sort of thing. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, an amazing technicolor dream coat. No, I mean a beautiful robe. That's the musical based on the story. Verse 4, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. I hope that you've seen anything as if there's one common theme throughout all the stories we've looked at in Genesis the last six weeks. People are messed up. Can I get an amen? 
you think you have family dysfunction, you think you don't get along with the in-laws, just read Genesis and you'll feel a lot better about your family, okay? If there's any, if there's any merit to that, right? So if you're Joseph and you know that your 11 other brothers hate your guts, right? They are cynical, they are jaded, they are completely envious of you, okay? What's the last thing you should probably do? Rub it in, right? Stick it to them, okay? Verse five. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, so he said, guys, 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 brothers, gather around. I have this dream I want to tell you about, okay? They hated him more than ever. Verse six. So listen to this dream, he said. Oh, (laughs) verse six. He says, listen to this dream, he said. Verse seven. So you can imagine, Joseph is 17, so I'll try to sound like a 17-year-old. So here's Joseph. He said, you know, we were out in the field. Guys, I don't understand this. We were out in the field, and we were tying up these bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up, and, and your bundles all gathered around and started worshiping mine. Huh. What could that possibly mean, right? And you, They just want to deck them right there on the spot, right? At age 17 as some teenagers do, kind of struggling with some emotional intelligence, okay? Situational awareness here, Joseph, okay? Your brothers hate your guts. You probably shouldn't tell them that you had a dream that they worshiped you, okay? Says his brothers hated him all the more. Not so great self-awareness. But here's the thing that you don't miss in all of this. Joseph had a gift. And some of you have gifts, but they need to be honed. And they need to be refined, so that they're not about you and that they're about building God's kingdom. That's the subplot of this story. Don't forget that Joseph has a gift of interpreting dreams, and that's going to come in really handy later on, about 13 chapters from now. So here's Joseph, and he has another dream where the sun and the moon and the stars bow down and worship him, and it's his brothers worshiping him again. So if you're like his brother, you're like, this is the last straw. Like, we're done with this, okay? So one day, his brothers are off tending their flocks at a place called Shechem. Everybody say Shechem. Shechem. It's just kind of fun to say. And they're out tending their flocks over there. And Jacob, is the dad, has got to be completely unaware of what's going on uh, as well. And so he sends Joseph to check on his other brothers. And so he's basically sending him to his death. We don't, he doesn't know that. And when he arrives, it says, while he was a long way off, his brothers noticed him coming. Why do you think they could notice him from far away? His coat, right? The amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? And essentially, they plot this whole thing before he gets there. And then when he shows up, they jump him. They take, him, take his coat. They tear it to shreds. They put him in a cistern, which is essentially a well, but there's no water in it. And they essentially leave him there to die. And you think your family has issues, okay? So they do that. And then one of the brothers goes, hey, out of nowhere, he spots this traveling caravan that's going by. And essentially, a slave trade. It's like early human trafficking, Okay? And they've got a bunch of people that they're bringing to Egypt. And in, in basically the slave trade, they're like, it actually says in the scripture, you know, they have a little bit of remorse. You know, he is our brother, so let's not just throw him in a well to die. Let's sell him in human trafficking, because that's a little better. I mean, he is our brother after all. Like, they actually say that, right? Messed up. Okay? So here's Joseph, okay? Think about the disappointment that he's faced by age 17. He's been hated for most of his childhood. He's sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up, by the end of the chapter, getting shipped off. He's all the way in Egypt, a place he's never been before, separated from everything he's ever known. He gets bought by Potiphar, who is like essentially the chief henchman or the chief bodyguard for Pharaoh's police. 
Joseph's life is filled with disappointment. Very early on between his dreams and the fulfillment, X marks the spot. What has been that moment in your life? Maybe there's been several moments where it just life screeched to a halt or you hit a speed bump or you completely went in the ditch or you took a detour of what you thought life was going to be like. Joseph's life is filled with disappointment. The question is, how do you respond to those moments in your life? Does it completely derail you or is there a better way to respond? Well, nobody knows the feeling of disappointment more than kind of the main character in the TV series we're going to look at today. His name is Don Draper, and he's kind of the lead character in the TV series Mad Men. Just a show of hands. I know it's not the greatest show, but you're in church, so let's be real. How many of you have watched Mad Men or seen Mad Men before? Okay, a few of you. Awesome. Cool. We'll get the rest of you caught up. So I'm not saying that this is a family-friendly show that you should go home and have family movie night uh, tonight. I would stick to the Olympics uh, for that. However, it is very deep. It is very powerful, and there's a reason it's one of the most popular sitcoms to have ever been on. It's kind of set in the 1960s, and it tells the story of Don Draper and some of his colleagues who were coined the phrase Mad Men, and it's this drama of of this fictional advertising agency in New York City at the time called Sterling Cooper, which in those days, it was a life filled with long hours and greed and the abuse of power and sexism, and well, a lot of lonely people hiding behind their work. So not relevant to us at all. And so here's Draper, and he's played by John Hamm. I don't know if there's any John Hamm fans out there, but he's just like the perfect role for this character. It's uh, on the outside, he is cool and suave, and he's this gifted, creative uh, advertising agent, and he's loved by everybody, and he's highly successful, and he's highly wealthy, but on the inside, his life is empty. It's a complete sham. And to this day, it haunts him. From a very early age, he's experienced excruciating disappointment. Do you know anybody like that? That the facade, what what they project to the world is everything's good. How's the family? Oh, good. How's the kids? Great. Always well-behaved. Everything's good. Nothing could be. We're just great. Everything's awesome. Okay, you can take off the mask now. You know anybody like that that just loves to pretend like everything's okay, but on the inside you know they're just dying? Not physically. They're hurting. They're in pain, and they're trying to cover it all up. So the first scene you're going to see here is Draper. He's giving a pitch to the Hershey's Candy Bar people. You know, the Hershey's Candy Bar, which, by the way, I learned from this scene, one of the only candies that looks the same on the wrapper as it does with the actual thing. Ever think about that? Don't say I never taught you anything, right? So there it is, right? And he's giving this pitch to the advertising agency, and right in the middle of this high-profile job, the wounds and the pain from his past just come out. Because the truth is, wherever you are, you bring yourself with you, and you can't run from your past. Let's take a look. There's two ways to interpret that scene. Number one, Don Draper is the biggest buzzkill salesman in history. (laughs) Or number two, behind every man, no matter what front he puts up, is a little boy. Behind every woman, no matter what front she puts up, is a little girl. 
I had to edit that scene for your family viewing pleasure because there were some other things spoken in that scene. But it turns out that we learn that Don was born to a prostitute and an abusive alcoholic father, raised in a brothel, essentially, abused from a very early age in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And yet, as he's being raised by a woman that's not his mother, his mother died in childbirth, never really knew his mom, so he's not wanted. The, the psychological memory of a candy bar that he would get as a sign of affection sparks this entire trail of wounds, and he realizes, I still crave the affection of my father that's been dead for 40 years. I'm guessing that not all of us here today have a great relationship with our parents. Some of you do, and praise God for that. That is awesome. T tell them that. Remind them of that. But for a lot of us, we don't, and that is the source of a lot of our pain. That disappointment is very true. That moment for Draper was very early on in his life, just as it was for Joseph. And so they've got family dysfunction and this pain from a very early time in their lives. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is sort of set up this compare and contrast, essentially, between the way that we respond to those moments of disappointment. So I just want to set them side by side almost and say, what does Joseph's response look like? And the D is for Draper, for Don Draper, what are the different ways that they respond to the disappointment in their life? And what can we learn from the two very, very different responses to the pain and the wounds that we experience as children and the disappointments we face in our life, no matter when, when that happened? So first, let's set up Joseph's story a little bit more. If you're following along, skip a couple pages to chapter 39, Genesis chapter 39. So remember, Joseph's a young man now. He's living as a slave in a foreign country, completely unideal circumstances. And I guarantee there's some of you that are here this morning that are sitting here going, this is not where I wanted to be in life. I'm just kind of quietly bitter at God because I'm nowhere near where I want to be, whatever your circumstances are. Joseph is 17 and he's living as a slave in a foreign country. Not exactly where he thought his dream would take him. But in verse 2, we read this. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Why is that first line, the Lord is with Joseph, so significant? Well, all the other pagan and, and foreign gods in the Old Testament were, were usually associated with a certain place or a certain region or a certain people group. So you had like the God of Canaan or you had the God of Moab or the God of the, the Philistine people, right? So why is that verse so important? The Lord was with Joseph. God was saying to Joseph and he says to you this morning, I'm not a regional God. I'm bigger than that. I'm not associated with a certain place. And for you this morning, that might mean I'm not, I'm not a seasonal God. I wasn't just there before the divorce. I was there in the middle of it and after your divorce. I wasn't just there before the addiction. I was there during and after the addiction. I wasn't just there at the disappointing time. I've been there the entire time. And if you're feeling cold or distant or stuck in your relationship with God, if he feels far away from you this morning, he never left. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is still with you. And God says, I'm never going to leave you. And I'm going to show up in the places in your life that you would least expect, like right in the middle of your disappointment. And so we read on and it says that God's spirit is so 
thick, is so present in Joseph's life that it's evident that he's working for Potiphar, this kind of main henchman for Pharaoh, that Potiphar basically chooses to put Joseph in front of everything that he has, his whole household. And so in just a little bit of time, Joseph goes from being a slave at the end of his rope to all of a sudden he has this giant platform now to witness to hundreds and thousands of people. Potiphar looks at Joseph's life and says, whoa, I mean, the greatest compliment I think that we could ever receive as Christians is for a non-Christian, somebody that wants nothing to do with Jesus, is to look at your life and say, whoa, I don't know what it is about you, but I want that. Do you live your life in such a way that other people look at your life and say, I want your life? What is it about your life as a follower of Jesus that's so attractive? And, 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 and Joseph lived in that way. And so right in the middle of his disappointment, he discovers this first powerful truth. Joseph sees disappointment as an opportunity. Everybody say opportunity. When you experience setbacks or disappointments in your life, is your first response, geez, God, why me? Really? This now? A flat tire now? Somebody breaks up with me now? I lose my job now? I get a pay cut now? My kid makes this decision. Really? Or is your first response, hmm, I wonder what God's going to do this time. I wonder how God's going to provide this time. I wonder how God's going to show up this time. And I want you to notice something about the Joseph story. This isn't a, okay, Pastor John told me when I experience setbacks in my life and disappointment, I'm just supposed to smile really, really big and say, it'll all be okay. Just have a positive attitude. That is so unbiblical. Couldn't it be further from the truth? Instead, what Joseph realizes is that just because you're not where you want to be, it doesn't mean that God's not making streams in your desert. Just because you're not where you want to be doesn't mean God's not exactly right where he needs to be. Right there. And in those moments when you feel distant from God and you feel like he doesn't care or he's given up on you, I believe that's when God's doing his best work. Remember, it's not about the, the, the destination. It's about who you're becoming along the way. Well, in complete contrast to that, we've got Donald Draper over here, and he does almost the opposite. So we learn that through later episodes, in an effort to escape his past and his disappointing childhood, at age 20, he runs off, he joins the army, and he starts fighting in uh, the Korean War. And while he's there, we find out his name isn't Don Draper. It's Richard Dick Whitman. And he, what happens is they're in this battle and he causes this accident where this explosive goes off and it kills his officer, Lieutenant Don Draper. And so in an effort to escape his past, while the guy's dying, he takes off his dog tags, holds them, and he wakes up. He goes unconscious, wakes up in the military hospital, and they look at him grasping his dog tags and assume he's Donald Draper. So in an effort to escape his past, he steals somebody else's identity, receives an award, a Purple Heart Award in the military that he didn't deserve, that his the lieutenant, that his officer deserved, and he comes, cons his way into this job at this advertising agency that he's at now, and he becomes highly successful, but as we saw in the first clip, no matter how hard he tries, even stealing somebody else's story, he can't outrun his past. Draper's response to disappointment instead of an opportunity is to run. Well, maybe if I just run fast enough, maybe if I just pretend that all of that didn't happen and shove it under the rug and put on my happy church face, 
everything will be fine. It never goes away. Wherever you are, you bring yourself with you. You can go to church your whole life and never look under the hood of your own heart. What's really going on there? There's a deeper work to be done. You can never outrun your past. Instead, in contrast to that, Joseph says, not only do I see this disappointment as an opportunity, I'm not going to let the disappointment change who I am. And so the second way that Joseph responds to disappointment is through living a life of integrity. Everybody say integrity. Integrity. One of my favorite things to talk about. So here's Joseph. We're still in chapter 39. And we find that Joseph has grown into a, you know, a 20-something. He's a strapping, good-looking young man. He's appeared on ABC's The Bachelor. Life is going really well for him at this time. Some of you are like, really? Where's that head story? No. And because he's a good-looking, strapping, you know, strong, put-together young man, he catches the eye of his boss's wife. So not only do we have The Bachelor, but we have Desperate Housewives now in Genesis, and the whole thing's falling apart, right? And I don't need to tell you how this is going to go down, right? So she says, hey, do you want to hold hands? And one thing leads to another, right? And some of you have been there, particularly in terms of relational and sexual sin. It is staring you in the face, particularly guys, because we're so much more visual. So here's Joseph. Nobody is around him that would know. And he's got an opportunity to get a little pleasure behind the scenes. Yeah, nobody will find out. After all, I probably deserve it. What do you do when... Sexual temptation is staring you in the face. Well, nobody will ever find out. Not Joseph. He says this. Look, verse 8, he told her, My master, your husband, trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So not only is Joseph being a man of integrity, he's calling her out at the same time. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Is the reason that you don't sin to protect your own image or because it would grieve God's heart? Sometimes I think we treat sin. How, how close can I get to that line without like falling over and we live our lives like this, when God says, why don't you just turn around and run as far as you can in the opposite direction towards me? Repentance isn't just turning from sin, it's running towards God. Notice that's Joseph's heart. Because he's a man of integrity, I don't want to disgrace my God. And you shouldn't either. A good definition of integrity is who you are when no one's looking. It would have been so easy for Joseph in the middle of his disappointment to get bitter towards God and say, God, how could this happen to me? You let my brothers throw me in a well and leave me for dead and sell me in a slave trade, and here I am in a completely unideal situation. When am I going to get mine? And some of us, we get that way, and I think one of the ways that we respond to disobedience is that we allow, or respond to disappointment, is we justify our disobedience because of our disappointment. We use our disappointment to justify all sorts of things. How easy would it have been for Joseph to say, you know what, God's been holding out on me. Somebody else's wife, it doesn't matter. God's been holding out on me. I deserve a little bit of pleasure. And we, we do this in all sorts of ways, if we're not careful. This is all, it's not reactive to anything. 
just warning you. Oh, you know, I, I just, my wife's out of the house for a while. I'll just kind of hop on a couple of those websites. Nobody will ever find out. It's just a little, just a little flirting in, at the office. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's just a, <laughs> what, what are a couple text messages to a co, I mean, co-workers? Doesn't mean, and we just forget that there's this whole other area of our lives called emotional adultery. Well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did to their heart. You know, God, I've been faithful all these years. How, how bad can just a few texts to that other lady or that other man be? Like, my, my spouse doesn't have to know. God, I've been single. I'm in my late 30s. I'm in my early 40s. Everybody else is experiencing what I want to experience. So it's just, it's just a one-night stand. It's just a little fling. Nobody ever has to know. It's been a really, really disappointing week. Work's been really hard. I deserve a few drinks. And maybe a few more drinks. And just like any temptation, it promises to fulfill. The enemy's so good at enticing us. The reason that Satan doesn't change his tactics of temptation is because they work. Oh, it's going to fill you up. Just one more peek, just one more look, just one more drink, whatever it is, and it only ends up hurting us and others. Draper's response to the pain in his life is not only to run, but to go into a life of hiding, which is the road he finds himself on. The bummer about Donald Draper is that in this entire show, he has this craving for affection that you know stems from the love he didn't get from his dad. And instead of finding healing, he takes this need to woman after woman after woman. And that's the sad part of the show is this just filled with so many broken relationships and lies and he has to cover it up again and again and again. And in a similar way, what I see over and over and over again is that when there's couples, whether they're dating or engaged or married, when we experience disappointment in our relationships, 90% of the time, what I've seen, it's because we are, we are looking for the love and the validation that only God can give in a person who's incapable of giving it to us. I can't tell you how many uh, people that I've met with in relationships, meeting with either the wife or the husband, and they're just complaining, I, I'm not getting this, and I'm not getting this, and I'm not getting my needs met, and I have to look at them and say, they can't do that. Your wife is not God. Your husband is not God. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance are never going to fill you up the way that God does. Sorry, Jeremy, you know, Jerry Maguire quote, but they're never going to complete you. Marriage is not a half and a half becoming a whole. It's a whole satisfied in Christ and another whole satisfied in Christ coming together to say, how can we exalt Christ together? That's marriage. You are always going to be disappointed if you're looking to your spouse to give you the love and the satisfaction that only Christ can give. And that's the trouble with Don. On the outside, successful and smooth and confident, and on the inside, empty and alone. And so he does what a lot of us do. We hide behind our work, or we hide behind our busyness, or we hide behind shuttling the kids around, or whatever it is that keeps us busy so that we don't have to take the time to look inside. So in contrast 
to hiding. Joseph lives this life of integrity. And the best thing about being Joseph at this moment in the story, the best thing about having nothing to hide is you have nothing to hide. I hear so many people say, well, geez, Pastor John, everybody's got some skeletons in their closet, right? What if you didn't have to? What if you lived your life in such a way that you said, I, I know I'm not perfect, I've made mistakes, I'm broken, and I've brought those things to the cross, and they are nailed to the cross. And so if somebody opens up my past and opens up my closet, okay, I've already, it's already been forgiven. It's already been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So I have nothing to be ashamed of. Wouldn't it be awesome to live just completely transparent? All of us worry about being found out. What if you didn't have to worry about that a day in your life? If somebody found out the worst thing about me, I would say, okay. Okay, you can judge me, but I've already been judged and I've been redeemed by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So I got nothing to prove to anybody. Joseph lives this life of transparency and integrity. And eventually, because of that, he works his way up. He gets promoted up the ranks. And all of a sudden, by the end of Genesis, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he's in charge of pretty much everything that happens in the country. Well, at that time, Pharaoh starts having these dreams that he doesn't understand. And so Pharaoh says, hey, is there anybody around here? This is exactly what Pharaoh says. Hey, is there anybody around here that knows how to interpret dreams? And over in the corner is this young man that goes, wow, God, you put me here for this reason. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Pharaoh, sir, I have some experience with dreams. And he starts interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and gets promoted even more. And Pharaoh says, wow, this is amazing. God's spirit is all over you. I'm putting you in charge of the entire country. And one of those dreams that Joseph interprets is that the land is going to have seven years of prosperity where there's going to be wealth and grain and, and riches beyond compare, and then seven years of famine. And so Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he helps the country prepare for the famine that's coming, and Pharaoh puts him in charge of distributing all the food that they're going to have there in the capital in Egypt. And what I want you to see here is that Joseph, right in the middle of his disappointment, discovers that what makes life worth living is not a woe-is-me, navel-gazing, turning-inward sort of mentality in life. It's turning outward and saying, what has God given me that I can use for the sake of others? It's, it's being others-focused. Everybody say others. It's not being self-focused, which we'll get to in a second. It's being others-focused. Joseph says, I have this dream, and instead of telling my brothers and getting all stuck up and prideful about it, I actually, God can give me this gift, and I can use it for his kingdom. Not so with our friend Donald Draper. He's incredibly gifted as well, but the problem is when you're a poser, when all you do is wear the mask and just what, you, what people, people see what you want, the problem with being the poser is that you can never get off the treadmill. Because if I take off the mask, then what are people going to think? What are people at church going to think of what I did last week? What would people at church think of what's happening in my marriage? What would people at church think about who I really am? Would I still be accepted? And the sad part of Mad Men is that Draper never takes off the mask. In this last scene, no matter how much the pain and the hurt is inside of him, you can see it in his eyes. He's trying to sell a high piece of technology, uh, you know, a state-of-the-art technological piece called a slide projector. Have you heard of these things? They're amazing. And he's trying to sell this to him, and he can't keep 
inside, even during this high-profile sales pitch, the pain that he feels, the nostalgia to go back to the way things were with his ex-wife, with his kids that he never sees anymore. He wants it. Let's take a look. You can see it in his eyes, can't you? He's so close. He knows that life is about relationships. Even those relationships that he has burned. But then he snaps out of it once again. In the next scene, you see him just living for the next paycheck, the next big deal. Sadly, self. His life is consumed with himself. He's got incredible gifts just like Joseph, but he continues to be disappointed because he hasn't figured out what truly satisfies is not turning inwards when you're disappointed. It's turning out. It's using your gifts for the sake of others, not just getting your needs met. Had a meeting a couple weekends ago. We have a lot of teams here at Hope Des Moines, and we just launched a brand new missions team for people that are going to be uh, dreaming up and, and planning our outreach outside of these walls. And when we went around and we met each other for the first time, I just had them go around and share where they feel like God's calling them to serve and how their gifts could be used on this team. And so we went around and there's a, a young mom that's a teacher here in the inner city. And she just, I just have this heart for kids. I just want kids in our city to know that God loves them. And others said that we've been on multiple mission trips and we've held orphans in our arms, and we just have a huge heart for adoption. Another guy said, I, I, I don't know, but God's made me strong, and I'm kind of a, kind of a handyman, and so I just called, feel that God wants me to fix whatever's needed if somebody needs help. Others have said, you know, we work with those in poverty. We serve some with our breakfast club ministry here, and we just love sitting down and listening to the stories of these folks. God's given me a listening ear. That's my gift. And we just went around and it was amazing how person after person after first person, they, they found their purpose and their faith came alive when they stopped trying to get their needs met. That was the story as we went all the way around the room. I tried consuming, I tried being a part of a church just to get my needs met and get filled up and the what's in it for me attitude. And when I pulled back and I stopped looking in and I turned outwards, that's when I started to get filled up which in a worldly sense makes no sense, but in a kingdom perspective makes total sense. Some of you are empty, and some of you are continually disappointed because you're tr desperately trying to get your needs met in this life. You're running to the same self-help books and improvement you know, workshops again and again. You're filling your schedules with busyness and hobbies and events, and God's over here saying, stop making it about you. Stop trying to build your kingdom and start building my kingdom. You are going to be left empty unless you let the needs of others pull you outside of yourself. That's what truly fulfills. Not self, but others. That's Joseph. That's where his story ends. So you remember the whole land is in famine. And everybody from surrounding countries are coming to Egypt to get help. And Joseph is in charge of distributing the wealth, of distributing all the food and the grain so that people can live. And some of those poor people that travel thousands of miles to Egypt just to get a little help are 11 long-lost brothers and their aging father. And they show up 
all the way in chapter 50, all the way at the end of the story. His brothers come looking for food, and at first they don't realize it's Joseph because he's in charge. But when they do, it says that his brothers bowed down and worshiped him, begging for forgiveness. Joseph got his dream. And at that moment of his life, everything, everything is leading up to him saying, you deserve it. I am so bitter and angry and mad at you because of what you did to me in my childhood. And Joseph has every right to say, forget you. But he doesn't. Verse 19, Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? Verse 20, best verse in all of Genesis, in my opinion. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Life threw the worst it could possibly throw at me, and God took it and transformed it. Joseph says, he brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Final comparison to how we respond to disappointment, sadly, Mad Men and Draper's story ends with running and hiding and self-interest and regret. Joseph knows a God of redemption who can take whatever disappointments you faced and redeem them. Joseph knew that God doesn't ever waste one ounce of our pain. And in the end, I want you to see this. His dream came true. All of my brothers are worshiping me. Look at me. But you'll notice by this time in his life, because God had cultivated a spirit of integrity in him, the worshiping didn't actually fill him up. It was the person that he'd become along the way. And I want to leave you with this. Maybe life isn't about getting our expectations met. It's about what God is doing in you along the way. You're never going to get filled up if you're looking for that fulfillment that's out there. And God says, pay attention to what I'm doing inside of you right in the middle of your disappointment, right in the middle of your pain. I've never left you, God says. And I knew that we couldn't end today with that, but we have to respond because Joseph's story can be your story. God is in the redemption business. God is in the business of taking dead things and bringing them to life. God is in the business of taking the darkness of our lives and bringing us into the light and taking our sin and our guilt and our shame and bringing resurrection. And so today I asked the band to close us out in a song that I think is becoming kind of a favorite around here. It's called Glorious Day. And it's a celebration. It's a declaration of the God that Joseph discovered, a God that doesn't leave us in our regret, but a God of redemption, a God of resurrection that says, wherever you're at, whether it feels like a grave, whether it feels like a tomb, God says, I'm going to bring you out of it. No matter what you faced in your life, I'm entering you into a new day. And so I want to invite you to stand at this time. I just want to share a few of these lyrics with you as the band prepares. These are the words that we're going to sing. And as you hear these words, think about Joseph's story, think about your story. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb until I met you. 
I was breathing but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb until I met you. And then you called my name and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness into your glorious day. That's Joseph's story of redemption. That can be your story of redemption. God is not done with you yet. He hasn't given up on you and he is calling you out of the darkness and into his light. Amen? Let's worship together.